Okay. Welcome, everybody. My name is Paul Matthews. I'm joined again by Dr. Daniel Morawski. Today, we're going to have a specific discussion, and this discussion is going to surround uh, the, the subject matter of something that's you know, very interesting. It's, it's very much in the, the heart and minds of people like Dan and I on a daily basis, and it's, it's something that a lot of people are asking about, and it's relevant to kind of the plant versus animal-based diet. And an endless uh, array of conversation and topics that we can kind of dwell off into from this subject matter. But I want to start by asking Dan. He, he shared uh, with me a little bit of a story and background, um, you know, about his wife that went through this. And I thought this would be a good way for us to kind of open up into the discussion. And and he would share a little bit of personal experience as a physician who was advising and working with his wife through a bit of a dietary change under under this exact subject matter. So my friend, please uh, dwell into right. this and tell me all about it. All right. Hey, guys. Good to be back. Uh, it's Dr. Dan Morawski. Um, yeah. So Paul, uh, a few years ago, maybe seven, eight years ago now, before my kids were born, my wife and I were getting into the yoga community, exploring the different uh, like dietary options out there and just started uh, taking all these, you know, uh, dietary changes and trying to incorporate into our own life. Okay. So one of the things uh, that some of the yoga principles teach, uh, especially in regards to uh, eating, is kind of a karmatic view, right? So eating animals and uh, animal proteins can, you know, affect like a whole karmatic thing. So uh, we started. When you out, say karmatic. What do you mean to karmatic? Uh, karmatic. So uh, what goes around comes around. Okay. If you will, karma. Right. Karma. You got it. Yeah. Karma. Um, so that being, if you're taking the life or eating something and so forth, it's, uh, this idea that, well, then you are going to affect the, your karma, your karma okay. in a negative way. Sure. Um, past that, I kind of rely on my wife or other yoga instructors cause I don't, can't fully explain all the tendency of yoga and don't pretend to be a total expert, but gotcha. Gotcha. ultimately what we found is we wanted to try something new. So I went essentially vegan, uh, or not vegan, excuse me, vegetarian. And my wife actually came all the way to vegan and it was good for a few months. Uh, we were all good. And then about a year what's, went what's by. What's the technical nuance difference between vegetarian and vegan? Uh, so, well, vegetarian, there's, as you, you know as well, is uh, vegetarianism is uh, eating no, uh, excuse me, meat-based protein. However, some uh, vegetarians will uh, drink milk. So they're like lacto-vegetarians. There's mm -hmm. uh, your pescatarian, a vegetarian that will eat fish. Okay. Um, and then you got just um, uh, your straight vegetarians who avoid all meat, all uh, all animal product. Now a vegan will avoid any product that comes from an animal, including meat. So honey technically would come from a bee. So there's debate in the vegan community. Well, should you be consuming honey? Uh, milk would absolutely be. Something so it is fair to say so. though, and and you know you have obviously discussed this in the past, but there's there's degrees of this, and there's kind of varying. Um, you know, ways that people practice and, and, and kind of draw a line in the sand on some of these things you would say. Yeah, you got it. Okay. I don't know about you, but I feel like over the last few like years, it just initially when I, when we were in high school, it was you were a vegetarian yeah. or you just ate meat or just your standard, sure. American, standard diet. Sure. Right. And then as we've uh, gone down this rabbit hole, it's become way more complex yes. where everyone chooses. You got your paleo diet. Now you have so many things and i don't know it's just been getting way more complex yeah. through the yeah. years and keto and all this stuff you got it yeah. so and that's a huge i mean but i think the foundational root of this conversation all came from that idea when we were growing up as vegetarian versus versus plant or meat eater versus and then the vegan kind of thing yep. so anyway um my wife started getting sick. Uh, should we get these upper respiratory tract infections, uh, just colds? And uh, one of them just hit her so hard, it went into her lungs. 
uh, or like, why this like never happened? So, so did this shift to, you know, a lot of vegetables? I assume she was, you know, probably eating more bread and things like that as well. You got it. And we were pretty good though. I mean, we definitely like predominantly veggies, fruits, okay. and then, you know, obviously carbohydrates and so forth. So it wasn't like your, um, kind of a iceberg lettuce salad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like how was she getting her protein? Food. Was it, was it beans, nuts, seeds? What was she doing? Mostly beans, beans. is where we did it from. Okay. Um, so mostly, yeah, beans and rice. And, uh, there's a way to combo it. I can't ever remember the adage. Maybe you remember that. I think it's yeah. like three beans for one rice or three rices for one beans. Which yeah. is supposedly give you enough of the essential amino yeah. acids, uh, in your diet when you yeah. have, like equipped in the cooking ratio. Sure, sure. So we did that, but you know, this nasty, I mean, it hit her for like two weeks of like pneumonia, like antibiotics, all this kind of stuff. So we checked and we're like, you know what, like deficiencies in like B12 and some other, uh, and some other nutrients as well as I, like she, you know, pretty skinny, losing a lot, like lost a lot of weight. So ultimately the diet is what led to her weakened immune system mm -hmm. through like both macro and micronutrient deficiencies, macro gotcha. in case anyone doesn't know being like your proteins, carbohydrates and fats and micro is all the other essential nutrients such like vitamins and minerals and so forth. Uh, yeah. So, so we found, we switched our diets back, brought in some good proteins, even some animal sources. She still, she went back to being more vegetarian. So eggs she incorporated back in and uh, and milk and so forth. Um, so after she got sick and she started breaking down, you started reincorporating some animal foods and it started with things like eggs and what happened at that point, you're saying? Yeah, she got her strength back. She actually never got sick. And she went from someone prior to our dietary intervention who never got sick. She, you know, never got, you don't get the flu shot. Well, she, in medicine, so she'd get the flu shot, but never got the common cold, rarely had any issues yep. to like getting sick with every single thing that came through the door. Interesting. Um, so we found that this uh, intervention just wasn't right for her body and switching back bolstered her immune system and she's back to just being her normal self, not getting sick very often. It's fascinating. So, yeah. So that just told us right there, you know, there's a lot of trends out there, a lot of ways of eating, but it's very specific to uh, who you are. And when you start diving into the world of uh, dietary manipulation, yes. trying to follow the fad versus follow what's right for you, you, you got to understand what's going on. Exactly. And I guess that's a purpose of what we're doing here today exactly. to try to provide a perspective, especially uh, I would like to try to provide uh, an understanding for people to how to choose their pathway of dietary yes. intervention and what's yes. best for them. So, yeah. So, I mean, so let's, let's use this as our segue because this is, this is something you and I just could talk about forever. We're super passionate about this and, you know, as, as I think the listeners will continue to understand here, this is this is not actually a pro one way or the other argument. In fact, I think what we're really going to um, delve into more and more as we get into this discussion is that it gets very gray and it gets a little bit confusing because a lot of the ways that I think this information is being displayed to people and marketed is very black and white. It's one or the other. And I think that uh, our perspective and the information that we're going to delve into here is going to start shedding a very different picture and start getting people to realize that a lot of this is really lifestyle based. So what you do and how you live and what you do with your body is really the primary rationale behind what should drive a lot of what you do, the decisions you make, and frankly, how your body's reacting to it. You know, I think, is it fair to say that, you know, obviously people are going to react differently to, to different foods. No two people are going to probably react quite exactly the same way to everything, right? Is this fair? Yeah, in my clinical experience, it's 100% true. Um, every, not every, what do I like to say? If, uh, there's another saying that I'm always talking about. It's, um, we understand like every, we understand everybody has the same physiological systems, 
but how those physiological systems interact with each other and the environment is different for everybody. Mm. And there's blueprints through our genetic lineage, our heritages, uh, even like uh, like our ethnicities. They even play a role in like how we react to foods. And it's very important, I think, to understand a lot of that stuff when you really dive into what's right for you. And yeah. um, I have one cool uh, thing that you can uh, like find and understand, read about is uh, the prevalence of lactose intolerance for mm. uh, different uh, ethnicity groups, right? Okay. So. Um, uh, lactose intolerance, which is kind of, I probably most people who be listening understand that it's just the inability to digest lactose, which is a uh, sugar in dairy. Um, and when you are missing the enzyme or the component to digest the lactose, um, it, this lactose feeds bacteria in the belly, causes some GI dysfunction, bloating, diarrhea, etc. So simple solution that hurts, don't do it. Don't take lactose if you're lactose intolerant, yeah. right? Um, so anyway, um, the ethnicity stuff is really cool. If you think about it, um, the prevalence of lactose intolerance or the amount of people affected by it mm -hmm. goes up the closer you get to the equator. I see. Um, so your Eastern Europeans farther away from the computer, uh, from the equator have way less lactose intolerance. Um, where like uh, the ethnicities you get closer tend to have like higher higher prevalence of lactose intolerance. Mm. And well, what do you get more of the closer you get to the equator? you get more exposure to sun. Yeah. So the amount of time that the sun is in the air and can supply enough of its uh, basically light to allow your body to make vitamin D is longer near the equator. So there's not as much of a need to consume lactose-based yeah. product yeah. in order to get your vitamin D because yeah. where do we get vitamin D from? Milk, right? Yes. So as you scoot up and there's actually a, a line that is drawn, the transatlantic line from like New York, I think to San Francisco, I may have butchered that a little bit, but it's just basically a certain um, point in the globe. When you get above that or you go too far north or too far south, mm -hmm. you have way less time where you can get vitamin D from the sun. I see. So right now, shortest time of the year, yep. we're tilted the farthest away from the sun during the winter, very little time to get vitamin D. So we need the dietary sources of vitamin D, yeah. right? Um, and anyway, so then long story short, if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, mm -hmm. The Caucasian person who's not lactose intolerant, who doesn't get enough sun, will keep their vitamin D levels longer, get up higher because they'll be consuming the dairy product, uh, whether in like a, like Ireland or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then suddenly, okay, those over time who do not have the ability to consume the dairy because of the lactose intolerance, they don't they don't continue on. So yeah. you have a less less prevalence of lactose intolerance. Sure. I mean, so, it feels like what you're saying there, though, highlights a couple of things, which is one that different food, foods grow in different parts of the world, right? There's different climates in different parts of the world. So one of the most basic things that affects perhaps, you know, some of these decisions has a lot to do with the locality of the environment that people are in mm -hmm. and the types of foods that are readily available in the environment that people are in. So it's interesting how people get so caught up in modern times in this idea that like humans are meant to eat one way. When you study different cultures around all different parts of the world, you know, what you really see is people that basically adapt to their environment and they make the environment work for them, which I think is really, really interesting, you know, relevant to, um, you know, the choices, right, that we're seeing out there. Um, to back up a little bit and to get into a little more depth on um, some of this, I think if we went back into a discussion for people around the idea that if we thought about human history and thought a little bit about this idea that 
there's something that a lot of people aren't aware of, and this is this is perhaps something that if we went back to something you mentioned earlier, when we think about our, our kind of macronutrients and the idea of thinking about proteins, carbohydrates, and fats, okay, and, and thinking about the idea that we could break down foods into these basic three categories. But one thing that's really interesting and fascinating to think about has everything to do with the idea that prior to agriculture, the sources for carbohydrates were very different. They were very different. So I think there's this really interesting discussion to be had, particularly when you spend time, you know, studying archaeology and, and a lot of the things that people, you know, who studied the very early uh, stages of, of development of man uh, and talk about this period uh, very early on, long before agriculture existed and this period in which humans were just, you know, capable of, of, of really incredible things. And... Uh, I can't help but wonder more and more what your thoughts would be relevant to sort of a, a pre-agriculture kind of approach. So we're talking about, you know, there's no rice, there's no grains, there's no anything. So now we're talking about mostly thinking about, you know, a human who would have probably had to consume largely, you know, fruits you would find, you know, whatever vegetables you could eat. But, you know, there wouldn't have been probably ton more besides animal foods and then whatever you could kind of forage, you know. <laughs> Curious your thoughts on that. Ah. Well, I, it goes two ways. So knowing that that's how we evolve becomes so important because uh, not only from what we majorly consume, because let's not forget, we, we have come a long way. The average length of life expectancy is increased. Sure. Whether or not the quality at the end of those years is, uh, is good, that's a debatable <laughs> argument. But, um, yes, yes. but if you uh, look at what we evolved on and the availability of things, our bodies have the ability to adapt to what's most in front of us, right? Yes. And those adaptive mechanisms are, I think, what have uh, both led us to why, how we eat and some of the actually issues we run into now, mm. um, on, but they also keep us alive during the time when there may have not been as plenty. So if you think about like uh, the paleo kind of way of looking at things, mm -hmm. these are the things that we kind of consume pre-agriculture sure. essentially, right? Yeah. Um, getting the protein sources in, which are your meats and so forth, when there's not a lot of other uh, available energy sources that are fast, like a carbohydrate, um, and getting the fats in because fats uh, just, you know, ounce for ounce contain more energy than a carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. Um, those were very good sources of energy, and when we were hunters and gatherers, those would be our primary kind of fat or feasting, like foods, right? Mm -hmm. So then you take into account, and this is where I don't want to go pull me back if we kind of get too lost too far down the rabbit hole. But now we have our carbohydrates. What would have our carbohydrates been? They would have all been very complex carbohydrates. Okay, yes. uh, we're talking like any any veggies that we get during that time, yes. seasonal if that too, right? So if you're farther away from the equator, you're, you know, relying more on like rooted vegetables. And, and so to forth. the layman, what that would mean is like, if you've only eaten that kind of food, because this is like a really important point to make, has a person, right, if you're a listener, have you actually gone through a period of time which you have completely removed carbohydrates from your body? My guess is the majority of people <laughs> listening have not, you know, and have not had an opportunity to, you know, go for weeks or months at a time in which they've completely removed any and all you know, process carbohydrates through the body. And if you do that, it's a very unique experience oh, to God. sort of understand the different types of energy you get from it and also the way it breaks down. So, you know, this is kind of an interesting discussion relevant to just thinking about the quick burn, the quick fuel you can get 
you know, from something that's not, you know, uh, so hard to break down. And so thinking about, you know, if we were thinking about the, 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 you know, sort of, uh, you know, different era here where man only had available to him these like complex carbohydrates, it would have been a radically different situation in terms of the, the energy production and, 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 you know, resourcefulness from these things. Um, which I think for a lot of people is unique. Um, I listen on a side note to this, you know, you listen to some people talk about going on like a, um, uh, you know, a carnivore diet for a period of time. I know, yeah. uh, Joe Rogan talks about this and he'll talk about how his energy just like levels out. Yeah. So just think about the idea of if you've never done this before, one of the things that starts to happen is you stop feeling these big waves of like energy. You don't know what to do with and then drop offs. You just feel level yeah. and it's a really different feeling, which you start to associate with different changes, maybe, you know, cognitively or you feel antsy or anxiety, you know, these kind of things. So I think, you know, I'll let you continue here, but I think that's like an important point yeah. for people to understand because, you know, when people think about this, this is sometimes hard to relate to like, what does that actually mean? If I took those kind of foods out, yeah. it has a lot to do with the way you feel energy and the way you're able to output. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's striking. I, I remember, um, you remember when, uh, uh, what was the guy's name who came out with like kind of the carnivore diet initially? I'm blank and he passed away. Um, oh, man. It was prior to South Beach. It was... Oh, Atkins? Atkins, Atkins yeah. Atkins first guy so Atkins' own diet kind of took him, right? Yeah. As the story goes. And that's because um, where he didn't take into account was the uh, inflammatory component to like mostly yes. the carnivore diet. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but um, going off kind of what you were saying regarding the energy and the leveling out and yes. so forth. Um, whenever I'm trying to tell my patient about, you know, like how to like avoid the carbohydrates or let's take a break from them. Let's really see if we can change the body a bit for the better. Yes. Um, that feeling you get when you uh, withdraw or yeah. come, come off carbohydrates yeah. at two yes. or two weeks of just kind of like yeah. coming through. Well, when I was a resident, you could kind of, <laughs> I would always quote these, uh, studies done on mice and how uh, a lot of these like high sugar or like uh, carbohydrates that are very fast absorbable would influence the dopamine parts of the brain yeah, uh, sure. and they would give you that boost up, that quick lift, right? You would yeah. get like kind of that like pleasured centered, like this is good, I, this is what I want because this is keeping me alive yes. feeling, right? Um, so coming off that, you're kind of losing that like stimulation on that pleasure center. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, you're going to drop your blood sugars a bit and what happens is your body just takes time to catch up because as we all know there's this uh like uh process within our body where we can take fats and we can use them as energy yeah um but what happens over time in this uh where i'm always just consuming a carbohydrate and so forth is that the genetic expression of the of these uh pathways that allow us to say take and shuttle a fat into our mitochondria and then mm -hmm. break it down and create energy out of it. They just get shut down because they're not needed as much because you have such a robust source of an easy to process, like uh, yes. fast acting energy molecule essentially, yeah. right? Um, as we transition off of those things, our body upregulates those genes. It re-expresses expresses them. It's a term known as epigenetics that's being thrown around a lot nowadays. Yeah. And um, this expression of these genes essentially changes your body in such a way where you're able to then utilize fat or utilize protein mm. as a more significant energy source. And it's like come up or that turnaround time. I think um, South Beach, like the, the way that one's inter interjected where you can do like two weeks with carb-free completely, right? Yep. And then you build on like the very high, low, gar low glycemic index carbs. Mm -hmm. That's allowing the body to epigenetically like change the gene expression 
in order to then take the diet you're giving it and utilizing it, uh, utilizing it for maximal efficiency. Sure. So uh, what happens then is we're able to change our body for the better, play with our genetics a bit in that case, and create a lot of positive change. So yep. you lose that up and down swing that you mentioned. And I know uh, it's always easy to come back to the carbohydrate just because it's like, uh, just like the slow, I call it like the slow addiction. Oh, I'm just gonna eat a little bit now. And then before you know it, if you say did a South Beach, you came off of it, a few months go by, you feel like you're back to where you were with your eating habits just yeah. because it slowly sneaks up on you, how convenient it sure. is and just the availability of it. Sure. So, so that being said, if you think about the ancient man, the people who were, like uh, going through and ate predominantly meat, their bodies were ma maximized for that energy. Yes. And that's kind of how like uh, they were able to survive. And our understanding of how the body works under those conditions now, the bio plausibility and the mechanisms have all been kind of elucidated where now we can understand that, oh man, I can change my metabolism back to what that was. Mm. And there's a whole heck of a lot of health benefits that then just follow that change. Mm. And even if you make that change for a period of time, you're always going to have made it. So even if you slip up or you find yourself going back to the middle ground, you start introducing things, you'll carry benefits with you. Yes. And periodically making changes and going back to those things. And cycling is kind of one of the biggest like ways, I believe, at least nowadays, of maintaining a healthy, like a healthier diet and healthier body. So Yeah. I mean, and that would be that's something I feel really strongly about and um, you know, would love to get into more here. So you know, this is this is kind of something I feel really strongly about with regards to performance. And I think that's a really good way to segue into some of the extreme ends of what we're seeing out there and some of the different feelings and thoughts that people have. I'll, I'll segue here a little bit. You mentioned briefly about, you know, talking about the difference between kind of like fat versus carbohydrates for fuel. Mm -hmm. And so this would get into this discussion about ketosis and, and all that kind of stuff. And so for me personally, as a performance athlete and a guy that, um, you know, has experimented with everything that has been put out there and has really tried to do this for almost nothing more than, than to reach peak performance. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, there's no bias, there's no, um, you know, there's no, uh, other goal or initiative here than, than truly trying to figure out what optimizes performance. And so this would be some interesting things to dwell into here. One would be that, um, you know, I, I went through a period of time in which, you know, th there's a film out there, uh, Game Changers, which was uh, really interesting. It was very provocative. It, it, it still to this day is probably one of the things that I get asked the most about by athletes. And if you watch the film, it's it's really interesting, you know, and, it, and, it, and it's it's obviously a very pro plant based diet um, documentary. And there's all kinds of interesting data points surrounding it. But one of them that you've mentioned, and I'll bring up here that that's interesting to, to kind of get into is this idea that animal products create inflammation. And they, they do this thing where at one point they take a group of athletes and they test their blood, you know, after they had eaten like meat products versus like a vegan burrito, I think, or something like that. You know, forgive me if I'm, if I'm recalling that incorrectly, but it's something along those lines. And they, they take their blood work and they show that there's just a drastic difference in their blood, you know, way more inflammation when they eat meat. And I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, like, <laughs> like do people not understand that, you know, there's an inflammatory component when you eat meat products, but there seems to be confusion about that being a bad thing. And, and for me, you know, that this is, uh, this is kind of interesting conversation. So, you know, I'm not talking about this with any bias. I'm saying like, I'm a guy who basically for a living is struggling to keep weight on his body. 
Okay. And my job is as close to the old world as you can imagine. I wake up every day at five, six in the morning. I'm using my hands and my body all day long. I struggle with inflammation like everyone else, but I understand it as a result in a deeper way because I'm constantly being forced to still use my body all day, every day. And almost like, like a farm to a degree where you're, you're moving animals around one kind of, you know, helping picking up after another. When you think about inflammation and food and patterns, there's very much this interesting symbiotic nature to it where almost to a degree, especially when you think about, you know, intentionally training or doing things with your body where you only have so much output before parts or segments will start to break down. But then you have to keep rotating through what parts of the body you're using and as well, thinking about the same thing relevant to food. So for me, this was a really interesting thing to get into. So, you know, I start playing around with this and I'm, it makes sense to me, right? I'm like, okay, well, I work a lot during the day with my hands and my body. And I notice that there's certain timing factors relevant to when I put food in. So I played around for a long period of time. I went totally vegan for a period of time. I also played around for a period of time with eating, um, and still do, uh, frankly, a lot of like Ezekiel bread and nut butter. You know, so to me, this was like a really sound, plausible, you know, fix. You got sprouted grains, arguably like as clean of a bread as you can put in your body. Um, and then I'm, I'm packing it with like almond butter, cashew butter, organic, like really clean stuff. Right. And I continue to train as intense and as hard as I've ever trained in my life. And, and literally within a month or two of going kind of full, you know, away from me, just, just started breaking down, mm -hmm. just felt my body just eating away at itself. I started losing muscle. I mean, it was probably the worst I've ever felt in my entire life. Um, and it was interesting because in the same vein and where I'm, I'm really genuinely not trying to come off as like an anti, you know, plant-based guy. Like I could also say that I felt how I had almost rid myself of a lot of inflammation. Mm -hmm. So what I also found about being that version of myself was if I wanted to be more of a cardiovascular guy, like when I wanted to be the version of myself that could output, like run for long periods of time and do those kind of things, eating that way was very conducive to that type of lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested personally in that type of body type. I want to be, and the type of athletes we work with, a lot of it has, has more to do with power and explosion. So although I have been and experimented with and played around with every type of diet and every type of training methodology, you know, at the core of my personal interests is frankly a little bit more of explosive, you know, Olympic weightlifting and those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm saying is this is a really unique perspective because it's really like a guy that's like, I'm in science, I know all the things, right, you know, that I'm supposed to play around with here. But what I started to realize was that when push comes to shove, the eating and the style of eating seems to me to have more to do with what output you want to be able to do and the, the way you're going to beat up your body. So this is like saying like, okay, so we got in a discussion. I'm sitting here telling you I'm talking about the same thing with, um, you know, bigger guys in football, linemen, right? And, and you know, for the most part, if you get into and you really talk to these guys about what they're doing, I mean, they're doing all, all the stuff I'm doing, you know, at this point. They're eating a lot of meat. You know, a lot of these guys are drinking a lot of milk, you know, and that's a whole side note discussion to get yes. into. I mean, you know, we go into that a little bit. So here, here I am. I'll put myself on blast. I did not drink milk. Um, you know, I drank milk probably up through high school. I always loved it. It, it. it always processed well. And at some point, you know, maybe in college or something like that, I feel like I moved away from that. I got kind of convinced it was bad for me, yeah, you know, and I just started moving away from it. Even though in truth, I was being honest about it. It always worked for me. I always liked it. And then I was convinced like way is better for you, right? Mm -hmm. Way is better. And I'm like, okay, yeah. So I'm taking whey protein. 
And again, here I am, you know, conventional wisdom in modern times. I'm going, wait a minute, whey protein is just like processed milk. So why wouldn't I just drink milk? It makes more sense to me to have milk in a scenario where the milk, particularly the closer it's coming from a cow and it's got all that good bacteria and all those enzymes and things in it. So, you know, maybe about a year or so ago, I finally attempted it, you know, and at first in truth, like my body kind of rejected a little bit, but it wasn't long before it's become like probably my favorite food again. And maybe one of the most important things that gets me going, let alone chocolate milk and the sugar and all the stuff that's going in that. And, and again, you know, frame of reference, I, I'm somebody who's gone about as extreme as you can go. I think anyone that knows me well, you know, would assume that, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been at times, you know, somebody who's willing to do anything, you know, to achieve things in the performance world. So I've gone as far as you can go. I've tried all these things. I've, you know, I've, I've, I've basically gone through just about every dietary iteration you can have. And as we'll discuss more, you know, my, my opinions have shifted into this idea that there is no one way to eat. You eat based on your lifestyle. You eat for what you want to do. And now as we dial into this more and more, the, the goal is to really still help certain people understand like, well, how should you eat based on your lifestyle? Or at least have some more information to start mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, putzing through this and pot processing through like, you know, what can I, what can I experiment with? Because in truth, I think you and I both know that whether we're talking about kind of like an elimination diet type approach or, you know, just kind of working through this, it really is helpful to start to play around and to have a very objective ability to understand when you, you know, bring one thing in or remove one thing, you know, what is that doing to your body? Yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, it just, it shows you not everyone starts at the same place, right? So that phenomenon, the inflammation, um, Postprandial leukocytosis. Uh, so you can get elevation of white blood cells after you eat, and that's an yeah the inflammatory reaction. And meat, as you mentioned, right, kind of from the beginning of um, can in, can cause more inflammation. Yes. Um, now put that in context of your average Joe who does drives hour to work every day, hour back in traffic, has to 30 minute lunch, uh, grabs up a like what McDonald's, whatever you want, like name, name your thing, even even uh, any any fast food restaurant, right? Sure. Suddenly their each meal, they have this need where they're convinced that they have to have a meat product with each meal. They're living a inflammatory life, maybe uh, drinks a little too much on the weekdays, two or three drinks during COVID, whatever. Suddenly you have a environment and an output that, okay, this postprandial inflammation after eating, this inflammation after eating, yes, you're going to stoke inflammation. And there's never anything that's going to put out the inflammation, right? Mm -hmm. So now you have no movement. You have someone who's just overall sick and they're causing repetitive bouts of inflammation in their body. They're going to break down. Yes. But then you take you into account, right? And you say, okay, well, you're active every day of your life. You're probably one of the most hardcore dudes I know who uh, has a strict exercise routine. You have trained to do what you want to do and you're committed, right? Yep. Um, just the act of training, uh, you know, within a, within, a, uh, uh, within a certain context, obviously, like ultra marathon or so forth, that there's evidence that that will lower the immune system and cause some other stuff going on if you when you overdo it. Mm-hmm. But to the level that you're training right now, building muscle, that you're training right now and building muscle mass, um, as well as uh, kind of engaging in your kind of overall other anti-inflammatory ways of eating, whether it's high veggie intake, fruits and vegetables and so forth, which I know you eat pretty clean in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
you have two things going on that will prevent the inflammation that spike by a little bit of, by some meat protein. Mm -hmm. One is muscles inherently secrete anti-inflammatory molecules and messengers. Remember cytokines and all those different uh, different things we had talked about uh, sure. in a previous episode. Um, and then you have like enough uh, antioxidants and you uh, all of your anti-inflammatory pathways are greased up enough where some inflammation when you eat is well controlled by a body that's utilizing its whatever it is that it needs. Um, some more interesting stuff too, when you think about it is like, um, and then I kind of, I stem this in from uh, some stuff I learned recently, right? And I see you have this uh, uh, grass-fed beef organ oh, yeah. on the table oh, yeah, there. Yeah. I'm not messing well, around. Man. I love it. Well, <laughs> there's a... In the uh, functional medicine world, so part of the, like the uh, the integrative functional medicine world that I I um, I, uh, I, I I approach medicine from, mm -hmm. a lot of people will use like something like an armor thyroid for like a thyroid issue, which is like a glandular thyroid to help people with like a slow thyroid. Um, well, that idea of eating all of the animal, uh, what did they say? Yeah, uh, nose detail. Nose detail. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's huge because if you think about it, if you're an explosive, so from the inflammation, just want to make sure I got that all wrapped up. Yeah, yeah. You have all those mechanisms in front of you and we could elaborate on some of that stuff yep. to control the inflammation in the long run. And then now you think about what you do, explosive maneuvers, things that are going to put strains on joints in other ways that people are, yeah. they are not doing it. Uh, a, a marathon runner or someone who's going for distance, one strain, one type of movement the entire time. Yeah. But someone like you is doing very functional exercises in all different planes and everything. Yes. Uh, very aggressive weight. You want to make sure that architecture yes. is held up. So consuming the very things that have that architecture in yes. it, um, we're finding more and more like there's uh, peptides and all the little subunits of, the, of that stuff mm -hmm. can get incorporated into the body. So yeah. you can actually maximize your architecture and your physiology, the strength of your muscle and yeah. uh, make the idea of how you eat engage in your lifestyle that you're choosing to have. Yeah. Um, and I think the other important thing is uh, you know, understanding some of our, like just our, our root genetic predispositions, right? So um, like for somebody who say there's a, has a mutation in how they store cholesterol or something of that nature, right? Sure. Uh, which is huge in like this uh, Dale Bredesen work. They're like looking at Alzheimer's related is like a, uh, like a couple of gene mutations. Uh, they're called APOE mutations. Mm -hmm. which are really incredibly amazing. Uh, these APOE mutations dictate kind of how our body takes cholesterol and stores it and a few other mechanisms, right? What they're finding is that people who have these APOE mutations um, are more prone to inflammation. Yeah. Now, from believe it or not, this goes back to another genetic, uh, genetic standpoint and how we evolved is that people with these pro-inflammatory APOE mutations mm they were able to survive better in the wild because say you're living in the Amazon, you're in the rainforest, um, there's bacteria in your water, you're getting the constant salt from other things. Having that more pro-inflammatory yeah, predisposition, you're able off. to fight off your environment better and survive. Yeah. Where nowadays we're very sterile. Yeah. We don't have the need for a lot of inflammation and the inflammation yeah. that we do stoke tends to be from our lifestyle choices. Yeah. Um, so if we have that old you know, primal, uh, APOE fighting mutation that helped our ancestors survive. Yeah. Nowadays it's hurting us. Yes. So like, you know, so someone with that who also works at workouts, you can find a happy median where plant pr product is still a good thing, but then that dives us deeper into why yeah. and the discussion there. So I think that your, like your consumption of what you use based on what you want yeah. makes total sense. Yeah. 
um, and going totally vegan or vegetarian, yes, you can do really cool things to decrease inflammation. But the question is, do you need to? Oh, exactly. And that's where it, you really have to start looking at a person. Well, exactly. And that's where, you know, if we keep getting into more situational stuff here and get into specifics, you know, this, this gets kind of fascinating to people like me because I don't hear people talk about it like this very often. And I don't hear people, you know, kind of, kind of go down this path of sort of saying that, okay, look, you know, again, just, just come back to, to macronutrients. We're thinking about carbs and proteins and fats. It would be my opinion that, um, you know, for an active person versus an inactive person, right? That isn't going to look the same. You know, yeah. it starts right there. It's like just kind of saying, look, if we thought about this in the old world and the new world, if you were a person in the old world that literally woke up every day and had to use your hands and you're lifting things and you're doing manual labor, right? Like you're breaking your body down. And when we think about the body in that way and we think about the, the category of protein, okay? Protein, um, you know, if we thought about this relevant to meat and, and the varying things that we find in nature, you know, one of the things that maybe not everybody understands is that calorically, most meat is actually very low in calories, right? So, you know, this is from an energy standpoint, meat is not necessarily, uh, or a lot of these animal products, you know, are not necessarily like super high in calories, you know? I mean, it depends, of course, if you start going the dairy route, that can get very different. But if you're thinking about meat as an example, you know, it's kind of interesting. So you're sitting down and you know, you're somebody that's trying to stay away from carbohydrates. So you're being told, for instance, like me, like you know, at varying points in my life with a little bit more of like a bodybuilding kind of approach, you know, very much ate like lean meat and veggies for a really long portion of my life. So the majority of my life, what I've done is I've eaten kind of this way that, you know, I'm sure a lot of other people eat this way too, but I, I avoided red meat. I avoided dairy. Uh, I did eat meat, but I was mostly eating tuna and, and, and chicken and, and the very lean kind of kind of meats and things like that. And uh, what I noticed over the years was that particularly like my gut biome was uh, almost like void. I, I, I would not, um, it's hard to describe, but I, I, it wasn't until I started putting dairy back into my body and started really messing around with red meat and all that kind of stuff that I really started to feel this like good bacteria building back up in my body. I don't even think I understood what it was. I mean, I took probiotics and messed around with these things for mm -hmm. years, but I, I, I really didn't understand this. And the more that I've played around with eating red meat, that I played around with drinking milk and I played around with, um, you know, again, all these things that people yeah. are super anti, right? Yeah, but, yeah. but again, you put it in context, I'm burning thousands of calories a day. My, my cardiovascular endurance is like as top level as you can be, right? Like I'm as healthy of a human as you can be. Mm -hmm. And where do these types of things come from? Well, I study other top performers, right? So I'm out there studying guys like Rich Froning in his heyday, you know? And if you don't know who this guy is, I mean, I would argue he's, one of the freakiest people to ever roam the earth, you know, along with Matt Frazier, two of the more recent guys that have dominated the CrossFit games. And here's some nuances that performance athletes would want to understand and hear about with regards to these kind of things, because this is where, you know, this is my world. This is what I'm really entrenched in. I can understand the average person who's not moving a ton, you know, is going to look at this differently. But relevant to performers, relevant to high-level movers and people that are, you know, trying to accomplish things in the performance world, you know, it starts to get really interesting when you think about trying to peak your performance or to uh, create a certain outcome based on how you're eating food. And, uh, you know, for me uh, and for a number of the athletes that we work with, this is where you start to get in the complexities of like almost the timing of when inflammation comes in. So this could be even a conversation about like I personally – 
like to not eat as much meat during the day. And I, I, in my mind, I'm modeling this after our ancestors, right? What did they do in my mind? I think what they did was they mostly foraged and hunted during the day. And then I think they mostly over a big campfire at night, ate a lot of meat and, and filled up and relaxed and, and then charged up for the next day. And so in a weird way, that's kind of how my life has been shifting. I'm trying to eat more of my calories in the evening at times, you know, not necessarily like too late, but you know, somewhere around like maybe six o'clock or something like that. Um, and then trying to have, you know, oftentimes a lot of, uh, a lot of nut butter and, 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 uh, you know, uh, you know, I do a lot of Ezekiel bread and stuff like that during the day, but here's what's interesting, right? Because if I, if I dumb this down even a little bit more. What I'm trying to say to you is that I actually feel the best when I eat primarily animal products with, with, um, you know, a, a decent amount of vegetables, but I break down if I don't eat enough calories. And the problem I run into is that I can't get calorically dense enough food in my body to not almost run out of the ability to, you know, keep kind of burning through this stuff. So it ends up for me being a similar discussion that I run to, into with a lot of my athletes where you've got a time to eat, you better make the right decisions. And if you don't, it's like you're almost making a decision between something that makes you feel inflamed and kind of locks you up a little bit for a period of time, but you don't necessarily lose mass and size and strength, or you make the, these other decisions that go, okay, well, I don't hurt as much because I don't feel this inflammatory effect through my body. But then the next time I get under the bar or the next time that I'm competing with another human, I feel 10% less power. Mm -hmm. So this is like, this is, this is really the conversation that I'm taking it into, which is <laughs> nice. fascinating as hell. Because for me, this is one of the major challenges that I think a lot of people run into. Because you could make the total opposite argument about a sedentary person mm -hmm. who's sitting there going like, oh, you know, I just love red meat. But I'm noticing that like I'm not moving much and it's like the, the more I eat red meat and this is a very common thing that I run into with a lot of my my you know less uh, active clientele where they'll talk about you know as they're getting older you know they're noticing these really um, not so ideal effects with red meat yeah. and and the frequency of it's becoming less and less and it's like they can only have a little they love it but they're craving it less. And, and then of course we're talking about lifestyle. And then I've also noticed with some of these people as I've, you know, maybe watched them increase sort of their muscle um, expenditure, how that starts coming back and changing. So it just, to me, entrenches me more and more into this idea that, you know, humans, you know, there is no right or wrong. It's like, no, it's we're just... totally designed to just figure out like what works for you and your lifestyle. Yeah. Um, where do you start with that? Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, um, that the food plan of how you're eating kind of, um, you know, eating most of the calories at the end of the day, looking for the caloric dense stuff and so forth. And then how do you battle the inflammation versus the power, right? And, um, you know, I'm always curious to see like, yeah, well, when an athlete tells you like I'm inflamed, what do they usually like, what are they, what, what's their definition? How does uh, like a high level athlete say they're inflamed? Do you have any? Like, yeah. Yeah. What, well, what is in like your current. Um, well, so here I'll even, let me give a little no. preface for this. This is yeah. my own personal belief and I feel very strongly about this. Um, so we come back to the idea of thinking about the engineering right, yeah, of the yeah. body, right? And so this is all I think that's going on this. I don't think a lot of people understand this really well, but come back to what we talked about previously on, on the, the other podcast here where it's, it's pretty simple, right? Like the brain's a, a computer system. You've got wiring from your brain that goes out into every joint system. Yeah. You know, before I saw you today, I got worked on for two hours. 
and you know, I'm getting a nerve manipulated that goes down my right arm. That's actually messing with my lat connection, my ability to, you know, do some things with my right arm. Sure. And what this is, is my ulnar nerve, the pinky side nerve on my right hand. And, and what happens to people as a result of the way we're moving, I believe is that nerves can get kind of clipped and pit pinched over joints and what I'm finding, and I believe I've kind of proven in my own little world here, is that uh, what you see with people is a pretty straightforward, poor reaction when they put inflammatory foods in their body, when nerves start clamping down and pinching on places they're not supposed to. So when you look, when you look at an athlete who's not moving as well, mm-hmm. and he's, you know, he's pumping a lot of weight, but he's not moving well, when he puts animal foods in his body, he will get more inflamed and feel a a deeper kind of joint pain than is normal. And this has everything to do with the quality of their movement and and this inflammatory reaction that's very specific to nerves that are getting kind of clipped and pinched over certain movements. So what I feel happens and and feel strongly about this is that it's kind of tied to their movement, how well they're moving, the timing of like how much they're training and how intense they're training and all those kind of things. But that's the key. It's okay. the way the nerves set in the body and where they're positioned. And then you're putting food in and it's like, oh, I just crushed my chest. Mm-hmm. But there's a time where a guy's going, well, you know, I, 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 ate, I ate the same things. <laughs> but one day, you know, I'm, I'm really hurting and the next day I'm not. And the thing we're kind of realizing in most cases, it's either the technical aspects of how they're moving and or the quality of the things yeah. that they're putting in their body. Is that chest pain a heart attack? No, I'm just kidding. Um, the <laughs> So I think, uh, all right, uh, well, I, so we can take that then in a few different ways. If um, this idea that the joy, uh, that the nerves are being pinched on through their tracks is huge, you know, yeah. anything that I see, and I can tell you with this uh, muscle skeletal interventions where like hydrodissections of nerves, and yes. you see like the nerve open up between the fascial planes yes. and what you do every day, manually manipulating them. Um, so huge. And this act of just pinching and manipulating, right? I mean, you pinch on anything in the body causes inflammation, yes. right? And uh, you wonder why there's, you can take like 50 people or a hundred adults and see changes in their back x-rays, but only half of them will ever have symptomatology. Yes. So although all the x-rays look like they're have arthritis in them, right? Mm-hmm. That mycocosm of inflammation within each area that's being pinched on or there's trauma um, is dictated by like a lot of different like uh, mechanisms. Yep. Um, one of the mechanisms that uh, influences that is just uh, a gene expression. So like, uh, there's a gene called NF kappa beta, mm-hmm. right? That regulates our production of something called TNF alpha and, um, IL six. These are just, uh, basically, uh, chemical messengers to elicit an immune response. Yes. So, uh, certain people can get, you can upregulate those genes over time, just the more inflamed you are. So yeah. a lot of the toxin ideas we talked about in the first podcast and, uh, just the general, like, uh, active and eating pro-inflammatory foods for long periods of time. So that idea from eating meat and causing inflammation or eating high sugar products and causing inflammation, those upregulate our genes that express the very molecules that create the inflammation that will create the pain, right? So down-regulating those is such a huge thing. And that's why I like this idea of anti-inflammatory diets, Mediterranean diets, and those are all, all the um, components of those diets are literally there in order to help down-regulate those inflammatory cycles. Um, So for the uh, athlete that does get more inflamed with eating meat and so forth, Mm -hmm. one wonders then, well, okay, why are you so inflamed and why are these genes upregulated? Yes. Are you just stoking the inflammation that's already there? And how can I help you down regulate yeah. that inflammation? Yeah. The other thing that we're noticing is um, 
when your body starts to make inflammation or an immune response, a lot of the immune response that is started comes from the cell membrane. Yes. And this gets really interesting because what is the cell membranes made of? They're made of proteins, uh, like basically a little um, uh, uh, phospholipids. These are kind of, a, it's a bilayer of like two fats, kind of like a soap bubble that keeps the cell encased and keeps all the organs of the cells in there. Yep. Um, and uh, like omega fatty acids. What do we know about a lot right now? Omega-3s, omega-6s, omega-9s. Uh, these are all long chain fatty acids that play a role in multiple uh, biological uh, or physiological processes. Mm. The one though to really focus on is these omega fatty acids, omega-6s and omega-3s, they just permeate throughout our cell membrane. Mm. And when the body elicits an immune response, it grabs an omega-3 and an omega-6 and it takes it down the pathway. Um, and one of the pathways it takes it down is basically equivalent to like what, like uh, ibuprofen Stuff yeah, like yeah, that yeah. blocks like non-steroidal yeah. anti-inflammatories. Sure. But the interesting part is, is that the very chemical reaction that will take an omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acid and bring it into these inflammatory immune system like uh, processes, mm -hmm. omega-6s, which are just um, basically they're found in high levels of poor red meat and so forth. Yeah. Uh, so that's where this kind of starts off, where omega-3s, fish you classically think of. The omega-6s are shuttled into more pro-inflammatory pathways, mm. things that make your blood clot easier, more inflammation, et cetera, et cetera, mm. where the omega-3 pathway that can be shuttled down uh, has like more regulatory inflammatory molecules. So they're less inflammatory and they're better at regulating inflammation. Gotcha. So when we have an overabundance of omega-6s compared to our omega-3s in our cell membrane, well, you're going to make more inflammation. So that's where all these like omega-3 like supplements come from and why they're considered like, you know, God's gift to yeah. man at this point. Well, the nuance that I think is important for uh, our listeners to understand in yeah. this case is that yes, omega-3s are good and taking an omega-3 capsule might be good. Mm -hmm. But if you have a ton of omega-6s because all you do is eat steak or like processed red meat for every single meal yeah. and your main thing is like a burger every day, right? Yeah. And that, uh, you know, Costco, Kirkland, you know, one, one gram of fish oil is like peeing in the ocean because you're not going to change your ratios of omega-6s yeah. to omega-3s. And it's really interesting because um, the ratio, which is described somewhere 4 to 1, 6 to 1, depending on who you pay attention to within this, like, there's a whole membrane medicine world out there we can get into another day. Yeah. Um, those ratios actually dictate then kind of the downstream behavior of our inflammation. Yeah. So not always taking that fish oil, the data on fish oil is mixed in like even the medical literature, right? Like fish oil does help heart attacks. It doesn't help heart attacks. It yeah, decreases yeah, yeah. the blood or it decreases the, uh, um, what do you call it? The clotting capabilities or thins sure. out the blood. But I don't think a lot of these studies take into account is the fact that, okay, well, what's their omega-6 to omega-3 ratio in the cell membrane? And is it supplementing the omega-3 pill that costed a lot of money? Or could mm -hmm. I simply move down my, the amount of meat product uh, to decrease or change the ratio of how I get my omega sixes to omega threes yeah. to cause less inflammation. Sure. So that athlete, and like something you can actually do is get a red blood cell test where we look at your omega six to omega three ratios, and you can say, well, we got to change them over this way. So is it better to look at what you're eating, decide, okay, you know, instead of this ratio of red meat to this, or what quality of red meat are you mm -hmm. eating? Uh, why not throw in some fish product here to balance your omega six to omega three intake? And then you can create less inflammatory, keep your protein up high, yeah. and just change it like that. 
The other thing that I wanted to get into, and if you have any, definitely like uh, pull me back, but I'm kind of excited. Well, let me pull you into this for one second because you've you've gone into it a little bit. Talk about quality, right? Because if we go the other way, you know, we could say, okay, look, you know, the, the, the argument that could be made right now is that a lot of meat is garbage. So, you know, if you get into this discussion with somebody and they're they're coming at it usually from an anti-meat perspective, they're, they're usually talking about the quality of meats and a lot of this bad stuff that's going on. So why don't you enlighten the listeners a little bit to some of the perspectives about the concerns about meat and about some of the challenges that, that one's going to run into if you're eating more oh, of these sure. products, you know? Yeah. So personally, I'm a fan of organic, grass-fed, free-range, okay? Yeah. I'm going to go down that route and uh, let's think about from organic or uh, grass fed. Okay, mm-hmm. so a lot of what we're seeing now, if you take predominantly the corn product, that everything seems to have corn in it yep. at this point in time, or like it's refined, modified. As exactly. Well. Um, well, the corn product wasn't something that the cow or whatever meat you're choosing to eat is. It's not its main dietary consumption. Yeah. It's a grass fed thing, greens yeah. and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they've shown that when you consume something that's locked in a cage. It's fed this like high like carbohydrate cornmeal. Well, it's inherently more inflamed, the cow itself, and the omega-6 to omega-3 ratios in the cow itself tend to be skewed. So you're going more pro omega-6. In a weird way, is it's almost like we're doing to them what we're doing to ourselves. Yes, right? and that's then we're exactly eating what it feels right? like. Exactly. Right? So, <laughs> and then and then on top of that, now they're not organic, so now they're getting exposed to let's say pesticides in the new like the neighboring farm that's yeah. next door spraying spraying God knows what. So it yeah. does go through some process, I guess, in the plant, but sure. ultimately, like you have this thing that's been sitting there, locked, not moving, not exercising. That's where this poor quality meat comes. And then some of yeah. the suffering stuff I do kind of believe in. Like yeah. um, if you take an animal and it like it suffers, I I, I just feel per, from a personal belief yeah. that the, the quality of the meat could go down. So, yeah. um, but that's just, uh, but I think the inflammatory components, that's the huge thing to take into mind yeah. is that the we're influencing basically the cell membranes, the cellular constituents of the meat that we're eating totally. in negative ways by the environment we put these cows in, yeah. uh, and then you can it can go even farther than that. But that's I think the biggest thing to take in mind. So, yeah. but there's a reason to buy the quality meat, in yes. my opinion, especially if you're going to go down that route. And that's just like a simple step. Yeah. You so know you're saying I mean? to people, look, you know, if, if you're going to go this route and you're going to buy eggs, you're going to eat meats, you're going to you're going to have any of these animal related products. We all have to be self-aware that they're not all created equal. There's something called factory farming that goes on, mm-hmm. and in this case, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of quality issues in that world, and uh, as well, you know, there's something else that uh, that Dr. Dan's highlighting here relevant to um, the process. And I'm I'm not an expert, but I've certainly spent a fair amount of time reading up on this, and it seems like the interesting nuance is this. Uh, finishing process, you know, so if you talk to farmers and you get into the, the, you know, all cattle start eating grass, right? They all start eating grass. Mm -hmm. But at some point, a lot of these cattle are taken to these feedlots that Dr. Dan's describing where they are fed uh, something that's not, you know, really, um, you know, considered to be uh, optimal to their diet. Now, people will debate and discuss, you know, the taste of that, the quality of that, but the bottom line is, um, you know, it's, it's definitely not what that animal was designed to eat and, and people debate the semantics of it. It's interesting now, but I've, I don't know if you've been hearing this, but I'm hearing more and more recently, like people, um, you know, talking about desiring like the corn finished product. They like it oh, more. And then there's like these separate nuancey discussions where people are trying to say, well, 
you know, the protein quantity or, or, or contents like the same. So like if you really break it down, that aside from, you know, maybe some of the antibiotics or other things that are going into the meat that are of concern that they're saying purely from a, like, and I'm talking about this kind of from a performance standpoint, people that in some cases just don't want to spend the money or, yeah, yeah. you know, want to get the meat cheaply. Um, but that's, that's kind of a really interesting you know, nuance to this because when it comes to profit and when it comes to just production and productivity and all that, there's a lot of changes that have been occurring in farming practices over the years. And this, this is definitely affecting the quality of a lot of things that are ending up on the table. And so, um, you know, going this organic route, going this free range route with chickens, um, you know, I, I, I'm sure you have, if you've oh, ever eaten a free range egg, like, yeah, it's great. Oh, wow. It's, oh, even my, like, uh, what are my uh, wife's neighbor or my wife's parents, neighbors, like they're their own chickens. They're their own like, chickens get them. Yeah. They're the best eggs you have. Yeah, like they just so have different. The yellow yeah, yolk. It looks more yellow. It's so yellow. <laughs> it's so different. So I feel like, I feel like in a weird way, it's like the point that we want to highlight a little bit for people is that whether we're talking about, you know, processed foods or processing and meat or anything, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's there's these processes that seem to exist in which the nutrients and some of the more organic elements of what we're trying to get out of these foods are being changed as a result of productivity and, 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 and an effort to, you know, get these things to the masses. So it, it's another layer that makes this convoluted and kind of weird. So when you go back to a thing like in Game Changers, a lot of the negative things that they're saying about it, a lot of this stuff is true, but it's nuanced through the lens of understanding that not all meat is created equal. Yeah. There is meat that's being responsibly raised, and I feel like there's a there's a more um, educated consumer now that's yeah. out there that's starting to become self aware of this and realizing that hey, you know there's there's you know differences in the products that are yeah. out there, and that in turn that can really have an end effect on how I feel, you know. And I think that's just like an endlessly interesting conversation to have as we go forward, particularly this time in the world where we're seeing a lot of change and a lot of interesting nuances with you know, what the consumers demand it. Sure. And yeah, I want to put a plug for <laughs> on this one, environmental medicine in itself, right? Yeah. So one of the big things with uh, meat conssumption and I think is, uh, is the pollution, yeah. right? And that's yeah. like hard to get. You around. had to go there. I know, I know, but we have to hit that one, man. But, but that's, uh, but, but it's a nuance, it right? Is, it it's is, like, it's right. not everybody's training super athlete who needs to be you're eating right. a lot of meat every day you're and right. so forth. So taking a step back and saying, you know what, this is like breakfast. Do I really need to eat? Like, yeah. do I need this piece of meat with this breakfast or whatnot? Cause you know, also like that whole balance aspect of like, and, um, this is what I love. I, uh, is this idea of balance and, um, <laughs> actually if we just pull back a tiny bit and say there's one less meat meal, then maybe we can say, hey, okay, let's decrease pollution a little bit. Because yeah. as we pollute more to manufacture, yeah. take water into this, take, yeah. uh, you know, transport, et cetera, et cetera, where our, the very act of polluting around meat is yeah. negatively affecting our yeah. health. So the very inflammation that, you know, we're going to create by eating this extra piece of meat, say, in our sedentary life. It's lifestyle. inflaming the world. It's inflaming the world. Yeah, so we have to, time. so we find like a balance. And I think yeah. um, like, you know, a dedicated super athlete, professional, you know, you tweak it in around that, but in the average joke, you know, they can, I mean, eat whatever you want, but if you, if you try to be conscientious, think yeah. about that. And then if we plug our money more into the grass fed, free yeah. range, sustainable farms, I mean, they're expensive now, but if that's what consumer wants, yeah. consumer can drive down price over time. So yeah. without everybody kind of contributing, it's, it'd be hard to make the change. Yeah. So, and, and it's like, um, where where is that going to go, right? Because, 
you know as well as I do that, um, and that's a tough subject, right? Because here I am, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm probably eating more meat products than I've ever eaten in my life. I'm like going <laughs> knee deep down this path, but I'm also saying I don't think that's for everyone. You know, I don't. In mm-hmm. fact, I don't think that's for most people. Yeah, you know, exactly. especially based on the way we're living nowadays. So, you know, I, I think on some level relevant to that conversation, I'm very sensitive to that. You know, I'm, I'm as big of a, um, you know, supporter of anything and everything we need to do to create sustainable ways of living. And I think that that's a pretty, I don't pretend to even have an answer there. I don't yeah, know what the answers are. I just think it's a really <laughs> tough thing, right? Because we, we kind of sense that if you look at it for what it is, you have countries like China, that are beginning to mirror more and more of our habits in terms of the way they're eating. They're eating more and more red meat. Um, and so we're seeing more red meat consumption around the globe than less. And so if there was a reduction or more of an awareness or maybe, you know, certain people, um, you know, feel for whatever reason that their, their bodies don't, uh, you know, process it as well. And they're, they're moving away from that. Um, it, it feels that maybe there's some balance and equilibrium with all this that we can find, but, um, I don't know. I don't know what that looks like, man. I don't know what the perfect world is because in, in my mind, um, it's going to be, it's going to be an interesting thing to see the way that plays out. My guess is, is that, you know, we're going to see, uh, we're going to see some interesting challenges as time goes on with regard specifically to the footprint and the consumption of resources that animals take up yeah. to be consumed. And I get this sense based on the things I'm reading and seeing that it's just going to get more and more interesting. I mean, obviously you're hearing about, you know, these, these, you know, fake meat companies yeah. and Bill Gates, all these people are investing in these things. And, you know, as, as a, as a guy that eats meat, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't even know what to say about that, but, um, I feel like it's there's, interesting. there's a balance sprinkling a little bit of it in is not necessarily a bad thing, but again, remember lifestyle, right. Yeah. And who you are. I almost feel like if we can, and this is just my, like a kind of a dream, right. Is that if, if you lock in a, like a, a diet specifically for someone's lifestyle, um, and an understanding of how they need to live based on what they're doing or the goals they want to accomplish. Not everybody wants to like, you know, uh, be a professional football player or like deadlift a huge amount of weight. Sure. So I almost feel like if people could just be more understanding of what their lifestyle dictates the need for all that stuff might equilibrate itself out, you know? So it's like, okay, yeah, you don't need to consume that extra thing if you didn't want to and yep. you know arguing what people want this is america right but like we but just understanding it and then hoping that the conscientious effort could be made at some point but if you were to sit in front of, if you were told hey you know what if you replace three of your meals with a this plant-based product here um i can guarantee you that your inflammation will look 50 percent less which might make it less likely for you to have dementia in you know 10 years and not end up in that nurse you know what i mean yeah and understanding that just yeah. that little fact in that huge change well then they're suddenly taking less strain off the meat production food chain and you start making that change and you know but you got you got to go do this you know what i mean it's just i'm kind of going well but but, but it's interesting i mean think about it though i mean if you i i study a lot of things with regards to uh you know varying civilizations and, and and you know people that have existed throughout time and you know, as an example, and there's many, but like I would argue that the American Indian is probably one of the most interesting examples of a segment of the population um, and a period of time where um, it's just interesting to study it. You know, they ate bison, basically nose to tail, primarily. That's pretty much all they ate. Yeah. 
And I would argue that that was one of the more interesting cultures and peoples to study from a physical standpoint. Um, and again, you know, like understand my bias, you know, like I, that's just what I study. That's what I look at. So I'm seeing the world through a lens of like human performance. And there's more and more a world that we're going into where people are having less physicality and they're relying more and more on cognition. And the truth of the matter is, if you eat a highly animal diet, you don't move and that's the route you're going. My underlying opinion is that it, it might get weird as you get older and you might find those foods to be like, like more inflammatory and you're out there trying to give a presentation and you're saying like, you know, behind closed doors to somebody like me that if you eat like a burger before you go and do something, you have brain fog, you can't think, you know, like I totally get it. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? So it's like, how do we create a flow state, you know, for somebody who wants to be, you know, really able to uh, be on point for a presentation, for a conversation, you know, et cetera. And I think that's kind of the way this isn't really being parlayed to people. Like the modern world is more of a cognitive, you know, kind of brain sort of kind of thing. It's not, you're not, you're not necessarily, and I'm, I'm on both ends of it. You know, I'm, I'm kind of dealing with a, a number of cognitive related, um, uh, challenges, but I'm also in this world where I have to use my body. And even as I'm getting older, it's this really interesting nuance of like, I would argue at 38 years old, like I, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to fight myself at 18, you know, to now, you know what I mean? Like I feel much more physically capable. Am I, am I, necessarily stronger per se like probably not in a in a one-off you know way but it's this really fascinating thing about as we get older you know you learn lessons about how your body works and if you manage to not screw it up and get to a certain point in life i mean you know i'm pushing late 30s i still feel like i'm in my athletic prime mm -hmm. and i'm extending my athletic prime by biohacking into the nuances of food and how I can, you know, just keep maximizing everything that my body's able to do. Um, so I find, I find so much of this uh, endlessly interesting pertinent to just these little pieces that you can keep perfecting to enhance performance. But if we went the other way and we thought about a person who's again, you know, not, um, not engaging in this kind of stuff, you know, I think you can start creating a path that looks radically different and you can start talking about things where um, you may be almost, and this is, this is something I'd love to hear your opinion on this. I find the most interesting thing to talk to about people who don't eat this way, okay? They'll tell me about these cravings they get. And this is to me the most interesting thing in the world because again, well, I study the brain-to-body connection, right? So I'm asking people every day about these, this communication link. I believe the brain knows what it needs. The body tells it. Mm -hmm. It has its own messaging system, right? So most of the time, if you just learn how to listen to that system, I think your body gives you these cravings. And so it's so fascinating to me that people are, who are you know, into their 50s, 60s, 70s, and they're happy, they're healthy, they're moving well, they have good uh, physical and, and cognitive capacity. And I talk to these people and I'm asking them everything about their life, you know, and you get into it. And what I see in every and any scenario is balance. Yeah. It's, there's no extremes. They're, they're not even messing around with some of the crazy shit that I am, right? You know, yeah, like yeah. trying to push it and push it, push it. There's just this balance. And it's like, I'm going to listen to my body. My body wants a burger on Friday night. I'm yeah. going to have a burger. Yeah. I'm not going to worry about it. But it might be the only burger they have all week. Yeah. And they might eat, you know, a lot of veggies and eat really clean throughout the rest of the week. I mean, what do you think about that? I think it's huge. Right? I think that's how the people who are the happiest and longest living. But I think it's it's so multifactorial. It's that, yeah. that idea of uh, 
I'll have a burger on Friday because, you know, I'm, that's what I want to do. Well, put it into context. I'm going to have a burger with, you know, a few buddies and, like, we're going to laugh and, like, discharge the stress of the week, you know, while I'm having that burger. Um, there's a community oriented around it. So suddenly you have the balance of, like, you know, like this uh, less cortisol, less inflammation, uh, less stress chemistry going on because you're able to bond around that burger or a grill, like you go out and grill yeah. and have a good time. Sure. Or um, take it in such a way where, yes, you find the ba- – I'm, I'm I love slacklining. I don't know if you're familiar with the sport. Yeah, of course. Of course. So uh, a lot of our buddies, we go up and do, like, long lines, like, over 100 meters and cool. set up, like, uh, uh, got a big crew goes in the mountains. But anyway, everything's all about that balance. So, you know, you work hard to play hard. Mm. And um, you take those people and you kind of realize, well – you know what, they're balanced not only in their eating, but they're balanced in their life. Mm. You know, they're balanced, uh, all the things around them are balanced. And that's where I feel like that's when diet becomes less important. Right. And there's actually a study, I don't recall the name, but I can look it up for our next episode just to give a reference. Mm. Um, <coughs> excuse me. It was an Italian community um, that was studied, and it was like fourth, fifth generation, like uh, all living in the same town in the U.S. Okay. Really cool, like it's always referenced in most, like, uh, if you go to any integrative population medicine lecture, uh, they always reference the study. But what they looked at is they looked at the rates of like stroke, heart disease, cancers um, in these like four generation households in okay. the states, and all of them were significantly lower than everyone around every town yeah. around them. Okay, um, rates of smoking, what they consumed, all of it was the same. Yeah. But all the chronic disease was low. Yeah. And what they found was that as the town aged and there was less opportunity and people like all the kids wanted to go away to school and, you know, do all the things that Americans do, all of the rates of the, uh, of the chronic disease came up. Yeah. So it's like, but nothing else changed. Yeah. So you start looking at community balance and lifestyle and yeah. like saying, okay, well, you know, this person like eats this way, but they're not like in this chronic state of like stress from their job right now. And mm-hmm. they... That's all. That's where the balance comes from, and then, exactly. and then I think the trick too that like where we started is like how do you then to someone who wants to do something super or above average, how do they then yeah. achieve balance and the diet and the way things balance is achieved shifts on a spe- yeah. uh, like a spectrum and understanding that entire spectrum and everything that contributes to that like idea of how to shift somebody's lifestyle yeah. and diet around them uh, becomes so important in identifying. I think that's a lot of what we're trying to do, you know, it is. It um, is. which brings me back to your other question about the athlete with inflammation yeah. and the protein and like, is the animal protein going to inflame them more? Well, if you follow like Dr. Longo's work with like uh, fasting mimicking diet and intermittent fasting, um, suddenly, okay, well you take it one step further. Our, ancestors yes they feasted at six they were all around the campfire or the big fire doing mm-hmm, that thing mm-hmm. rest of the day they're trying to find the food and so forth yep. so they had that particular window in which they'd like to eat yeah, yeah, yeah. so um that's like with uh dr longo has shown and um you know i think uh, his book was longevity diet he had started on uh, uh started studying how to diet influences like cellular arc- uh, organisms and then mice rat you know going into the mice rats and so forth they're finding more and more that when you get into this like fasting mimicking states yeah, or intermittent yeah. fasting. So yeah. for everyone who doesn't know, the big thing right now is like choosing an eight hour block, yeah, a really extreme, a six hour block to eat and then don't eat anything. Yeah. Well, there's early studies show that you could like literally feed these like uh, you could feed like uh, the same amount of calories uh, to like a, a mouse or a rat. I forgot what they used exactly. But um, you could um, <laughs> then take another and. Excuse me, let me digress real quick. You can take two rats, you can take uh, one and feed it 
X number of calories in a small amount of time or a designated amount of time. Mm -hmm. The other rat, you basically let it eat all day long with equal number of calories. And what they found is the rat that was able to eat all day long and eat whenever had worse cardiometabolic markers, yeah. more weight gain, despite the fact that nothing was changed in the yeah. diet. Sugar yeah. content was the same, everything. So yeah. no alterations. Yeah. Hugely important. And why? Yeah. Why does this all happen? Yeah. Well, what they find is that when you go into an intermittent fast state and the body does get to the fasting component, it upregulates like these particular genes, one's known as AMPK. Uh, this AMPK gene is responsible for breaking down fat. It's responsible for uh, like, it basically upregulating these enzymes that will take fat and bring it into the energy pathways. Mm. Um, it's responsible for a phenomenon known as autophagy. What is autophagy? Autophagy is basically the act of cleaning house. So if you imagine we're just this complex physiological biochemical reactions happening in these communities of cells all the time. Things aren't always perfect, especially in the presence of inflammation. So there's a lot of junk to clean up. Yep. When do we clean up the junk? When we're fasting and we're not trying to build. Yes. So when we're in a state of building anabolism, that's when we're all that stuff's going on. Getting that state of fasting, that allows us to break down and change up and re recharge. Yep. So suddenly you have this autophagy kicking in through this AMPK pathway. You're cleaning house. So there's that burden of inflammation that was there, the negative effects of some of that inflammation from, say, eating that meat protein, right? Mm -hmm. And I start cleaning that up a bit, right? So, okay, now yeah. maybe this is okay for me. Plus, I already worked out and I just rocked my blood vessels so my nitric oxide's produced and I have all this clean, like, all this very well, like, groomed, clean, like, architectural cell going on right now. And then um, you take that one step back and you say, okay, now I have another pathway activated when I intermittent fast. And I say, okay, these are my sirtuin pathways. And these pathways are for longevity. They just are ways of looking at cell health and so forth. Um, and more and more we're seeing that activating certain sirtuin pathways increases our energy output, our mitochondrial function and yeah. health, which is really what's been looked at for studying like uh, like athletic performance. And people are able to like output great amounts of energy and look healthier, live healthier, yeah. have great mitochondrial health. Um, and then... Lastly, in that whole idea of just intermittent fasting is that you actually downregulate other pathways that cause inflammation. Yep. So it's like, okay, now I have my athlete. You can go ahead and eat your meat and eat that, get your calories in, understanding how much you're exerting, how much output of calories you need for a day. Mm. Choose your foods and then perhaps cut the food at this time and be sure that you have your intermittent fast there in a clean house, allow the inflammation to decrease and otherwise start feeling better. Here's a, so. here's a thought. Um, and this is something I find fascinating because it's, it's sort of weird for people to understand it like this, but this is how I interpret it. Right. It's like suffering is a part of change. <laughs> it just is yeah. like, it just is what it is. So it's like, you kind of got to starve yourself a little bit if you want to be your best, right? Yeah. Fair, right? Like, it, like it, there's it, really right? no way to say it. Like if you want to feel your best, you have to get to a point where you're hungry. And that actually for a lot of people in modern times is like an uncomfortable feeling. In fact, I don't like that feeling. I hate that feeling probably more than anything on earth because unintentionally I have been a guy that's been trying to keep weight on my entire life. And like, I'm just not that big of a person, you know, mm -hmm. I'm a hundred and, if I didn't lift weights, I'd probably be like 160 pounds, you know, and I'm, I'm 155 pounds, probably something like that. I walk around most of the time, somewhere between like 170, 175 pounds, something like that, you know, but my preference, and I've been upwards of 185, you know, but with my job, my job is like running a marathon, right? And it's just this constant process of trying to, mm -hmm. trying to keep the, the weight on and the calories in. But having said that, um, I've messed around with intermittent fasting quite a bit. 
And I have found personally and with a number of uh, individuals that I've worked with and talked with over the years that this is just this natural process of allowing the body to almost like cleanse itself. And it's just a fascinating thing to watch people go through it because if you can get into these windows, I, I, I studied this a lot when it first came out and I particularly paid attention to it you know, in the athletic realm. And I started seeing just some fascinating changes in people because what seemed to go on is that it's like human nature, especially when foods around people will graze, you know, they'll just mm -hmm. kind of keep grabbing and grabbing. And, and what, you know, I, I, I'm sure, you know, the science behind this, uh, or there's gotta be more, you know, interesting information, but even messing around with this myself, I feel palpably better when I eat larger meals, more spread out, and then when I try to graze and I've tried this both ways, I've tried, you know, I've tried going to a true strict kind of eight hour locking it in. Um, and I find that with a number of individuals, we dis discuss this exact pattern. Um, it's just endlessly fascinating to me because what this seems to have everything and anything to do with is the specific pockets and regions that inflammation sits in the body. And in an interesting way, the longer you watch a person deplete certain foods from their body, and this is more my world now, so I'm getting into specific things about feeling mm -hmm. where inflammation is sitting in people's bodies, dealing with their lifestyle patterns, dealing with um, you know chronic patterns. And let's just you know imagine something real. You know, you got an individual that's got a chronic pattern of inflammatory stuff going on into their right trap associated with the way they're using their right arm. And so I'm finding in modern times, the more we get into some of these discussions about the food, the timing of it, there's this incredibly interesting, you know, kind of nuance between um, the inflammatory effect along with patterns that people associate chronic pain with. So in my world, there's just like an endless array of situational um experiences, I would argue, where people start to associate a pattern with a food, with a compulsive behavior. And then somebody like me enters into this world and it's like, I'm sitting there talking to you about, it's, it's again, back to stress chemistry to a degree, but now we're back into the food and this situational thing that somebody gets into. And it's almost like you sense that in order for this person to engage in this particular stressful environment, they have to self-treat uh, with this particular food pathway. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, um, that is then leading me back and, and, you know, getting into this discussion of why we're struggling to get people to get out of chronic inflammation in specific parts of their body because there's a direct correlation to a stress, direct correlation to a movement pattern they're engaging in. Like it's, it's just all connected. So it's like I feel like the more we can start getting into – dialoguing for people and to help people understand like every bit of this is connected. Like if you have chronic pain and you're in a scenario where you're engaging in something, you know, repetitively, which is pretty much everybody these yeah. days, you know, you're probably sitting in front of something, got, yeah. you know, a computer, <laughs> a phone or something, you know, right? Like you're, you're locked in. Um, and then, then I think we come back to a moment where we're talking about, well, why are you making these decisions, right? Because you're, it's about all this, right? You're not changing something in your diet typically because of no reason, right? You're, you're in pain, you're hurting, you're, you're mentally not able to focus as much as you want to, you're, you're, you don't like the way your body looks, you're seeing something change in your physique, yeah. right? So we get into all these interesting nuances and, and, and so... I, I think it's fascinating, dude. I think it's so fascinating. So much to it. It's just, uh, it, it. I feel like there's not a, enough amount of time in the world no. to go through every little nuance. I feel 
when you start looking into it, in the end, it comes down to, okay, who are you? What's your physiology doing right now? What's your starting point? And what do you want? Yes. You need to say, ask yourself, what do you want? We know how to get there. We know what's required around there. The pathway is dictated by where you're at. Yeah. So I feel like when you engage with people like us, it's we are a lot about where are you at, what's yep. going on, and then I need to know your goals to get exactly. you there. Um, and then trying to navigate and weed out all of the fad versus the science versus what actually will help my my client, my patient, my whoever I'm working with at that. Do time. you recommend? Are, are you a believer in you know? So let's just say we're talking about the average person who's like, man, you know, I, I want to make changes. I mm -hmm. I want to start engaging in this kind of discussion. I, I don't really understand all this stuff, but I want to start learning more. I want to start understanding more about how certain things are affecting my body, or just get into a, a better um, you know situation with the choices I'm making. Do you recommend and do you believe in doing like blood work as a, as a, as a baseline to maybe doing some, you know, uh, inflammatory testing or even looking at food sensitivity or things like that? Oh, I mean, yeah. what's your, what's your thought process about doing like diagnostic things to try and look into this kind of stuff so you have some baseline for making decisions? Oh, definitely. I mean, there's um, even insurance covered labs. There's very simple ways of like assessing the responsiveness of the immune system, looking for that vascular inflammation. Uh, looking to see if you're even over training and under eating, like just looking at your, like how your body's handling glucose, insulin, all of those things are intimate, like just connected to the inflammation, connected to what would be the best thing for your body. Yep. Um, the more advanced stuff that we can, we end up doing is like nutritional evaluations. And, you know, you could look at your amino acids that are in your plasma and say, okay, there is some relation between what my current amino acids are doing relative to what I need, especially if you're training a lot. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, like as I mentioned, that omega-6, omega-3, you can actually look at those ratios in laboratory testing and find out. And uh, you could say, okay, well, my omega-6 to omega-3 ratio is god-awful. I have this mild amount of inflammation and I have some insulin resistance, but my doctor would never call me diabetic. Mm. And suddenly you know where to begin. You know how to help with the fatigue, the inflammation, and all of the yeah. stuff we describe are all interventions. Um, and then, or you have that stuff going on and you notice that when you go out more, your shoulders becoming more inflamed or yeah. things for feeling worse after having longer recovery times. The tools are there yeah. and we can find out. And then lastly, that food sensitivity stuff, that's another huge one. And in a world where we're constantly exposed to toxins, and this is probably just another conversation, yeah. our guts, our microbiomes change uh, so much. And so yeah. much of what happens in our gut regulates what happens in our body. So even when we talk about yeah. plant versus protein-based sources, yeah. you may have sensitivities to some of the things in the plants that you're not aware yeah. of or some of well, the that's, beans. Well, that's what I'm going to. Yeah, so I've reversed that. I now am a person who, like, I... There's certain vegetables I literally can't even eat right now, yeah, which man. is like I'm – and again, I'm not saying this is a pro anything. It's just mm -hmm. like a fascinating thing just to I go through that process where you you make some of these changes. And now if I were to go back, I, I used to get a ton of fat from like avocado as an example. Yeah. I can't even eat it right it's now. It's just no good. It's huh? just no good. And it's ah. just like fascinating, right? So it's like obviously I know I could condition my body to go back to that kind of stuff again. But, but again, you know, and not to make it about me here, but I think um, – I think the more that people start playing around with this stuff, and I think, I think you know, there's a, there's a the, the carnivore MD guy. I follow him a lot. Yeah, um, sure. I think he's really interesting. You know, so I've tried to follow some of those things to that extreme. You know, I, 
it's just not possible. Yeah. You can't do it um, and, and teach their own, those that can. I think it's really interesting. But I think the more people just start getting educated about these different pathways and start playing around with it, mm-hmm. and whether we're talking about the ketogenic kind of thing or we're talking about intermittent fasting. I mean, intermittent fasting, as you've highlighted, is probably one of the most basic but it's effective easy. tools that yeah. any person can do. Starve yourself for a period of time. Your body eats away at the bad things. Yeah, exactly. And you feel better when it's over. And then over time, you know, if you can just force yourself to eat in this window, you preserve your life. I mean, yeah. the chances of you having problems if you do that, I think, go down drastically. Fair? Yeah. No, it's, right? I love it. Yeah, it's like equating to circadian rhythm. There's, right? a, there's a gene called the clock gene. Yep. Uh, it's in our, uh, it's in basically our uh, suprachiasmatic nucleus in our brain. Yeah. It's responsible for regulating melatonin production. Yeah. There's clock genes in every cell of the human body. Yeah. So there's this idea that our liver has its own circadian rhythm. Mm-hmm. So if we eat all day long and you never give the liver a break, you never let it do its thing, filter out stuff, get clear out the junk and so forth, but you're just constantly exposed. It's like running, like what happens when you don't sleep? Yes. <laughs> exactly. So it's the exactly. same idea, which I love. So, um, God, even with the protein stuff for you, one wonders, and uh, I know we're uh, probably, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot here, but <laughs> it's always worth looking to. And this is something that I uh, really I'm always curious about. People are always asking what's an easily absorbable protein, right? Yeah. And we yeah. talked a little bit about like uh, the ability to absorb protein and a lot of like the ways it's analyzed, like your nitrogen production after consuming protein. Sure. And um, there's different versions, but like whey protein and like egg whites or egg protein seems to be like the most absorbable yes. within like humans, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So you wonder when you get really low, like pea and rice protein, which every like functional medicine or practitioner will switch to because it tends to be less allergenic yeah. or sensitive for people who have food sensitivities. Yeah, what's the absorption level? It's like, like low, very low. I can't, low. I forgot the exact number, but it, the, yeah. you know, you take that into account where if you were eating all plant-based and suddenly you need more protein because your body needs to build, yes. otherwise it's going to, it's going to And these are, these are like such like, difficult things to talk yeah. about without like going on another. Yeah. Off, you know, and it's so. just like, it's like, look, you know, I think the, the baseline we want to leave it at for people is yeah. like, there are different options. There's different paths, but it's like, you know, depending on what a person's doing, this is going to keep changing. The conversation is going to keep shifting based on what your goals are, how you want to live, right? And and at minimum, um, there's a, there's an array of things that somebody can start to um, you know get into here relevant to diagnostic work, blood work, um, a discussion, you know, with with somebody who has uh, you know some some understanding of how to walk somebody through some different paths, and then at minimum. You know, there's just an ability to start exploring some of these different options that are out there in terms of these like more popular diets and things. That are going yeah, on. yeah, I'd like to leave like my final thought too sure. on that is um, everyone always wonders, and my dad says it the best over and over again. It's like when I was when you guys were young or you were a baby, I was told to give you whole milk. When your brother was young, I was told you to give two percent milk, and now I'm told to give whole milk again. Why can't you make up your mind, local community? And I'm like. That's because nutritional-based medicine and how our body reacts is a real-time study. Yeah, it's and changing. it's always changing. It's All changing. you can do is find the people who pay attention to it, have applied it to themselves to figure out where it comes. Because just as you need. Yeah. The scientific stuff, which is not always all there, and that's why one fad gets big and drops off again because we realize things as it happens, and yep. that's when it which changes. Yep. You find the people who are committed to this stuff, and you find the people with the knowledge of what's happened, and you do the best you can from that moment. Totally. So totally. that's kind of how I look at this stuff. 
All right. So that in summary is our first discussion. Call this kind of our first real official episode here. Dr. Dan and I will continue to have a number of more discussions around a number of different topics that we're really interested in. Stay tuned for more, guys.